that Australians, um, you know, for them, fairness matters more than freedom. Like what's going to get us there rather than what is the principle? And, and look, there's probably lots in our political culture, our social culture that makes that possible. You could even look at the really stark differences between our constitutions. Like our constitution is a, is a I mean, you, there's lots of critiques about it being a racist document because it doesn't acknowledge, you know, First Nations people. But more broadly, it's a very pragmatic document. You know, it's not an idea. It's not a highly ideological document. It's not full of a whole lot of statements about rights and principles. It's really about how government works and how states might work together. So it's it's boring and pragmatic. Um, but it gets us there, right? It gets us there. And um, in the American Constitution is an extraordinary document. It's inspiring. Um, it's it's aspirational. And it's also can potentially be a problem. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customised explorative research on key consumer markets, customers and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behaviour change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Dr. Rebecca Huntley, one of Australia's foremost researchers on social trends, a regular media commentator and writer, including for the quarterly essay of March 2019, in which she explored how Australians are calling for change from our government in climate change and wider social issues and the corruption of democracy. Rebecca is the author of numerous books, including How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, Still Lucky and The World According to Why. We discuss the changes that may come from the chaos of bushfires, then COVID-19, some thinking around how Australia and Australians have responded well to a pandemic and ponder, are we still lucky? We discuss fairness versus freedom and the likely shift in thinking towards Australia seeking a level of self-sufficiency moving forward and wider impact on our cultural values. Uh, let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay now, from the beginning. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rebecca. I'm going to start off with a question I've been asking recently. How are you feeling? How am I feeling? Um, I'm feeling feeling probably as stretched as I ever have intellectually Mm. because over the summer I wrote over five weeks. I mean, I I researched it for for at least a year, but a book on climate change, on psychology, climate change, emotion, and how we can talk about climate change. And I did that when we had no air conditioning while the fires burnt across the, mm. <laughs> across the country. And I felt that kind of stretched me emotionally, physically and intellectually because climate change is one of the, you know, it, it's, it's not the most complicated scientific concept for a lay person to get across, but it is an extraordinarily complex 
political, social and messaging challenge, mm-hmm. um, even more so now given the last 30 years. So by the end of that, I was, I was so emotionally and, and, and intellectually stretched that I really struggled even to read a recipe. Like I'm a, I love to cook and I remember, you know, the end of I'd finished the book and I thought I'm going to make a cake and I was just looking at this recipe and I couldn't, I couldn't um, read it. And then I had a couple of weeks, um, you know, kind of recovery and then COVID hits and, you know. So when did you finish your it, book? When, when, when I finished you... the book at kind of the end of January. Yeah, okay. And, and at that stage, we knew that COVID was in China. We knew that it was going to affect the, the tertiary sector here. It already was very early. That was one sector that got hit, you know, quite significantly. But, you know, then we went into this, I mean, it's a cliche to call it unprecedented, but it's a cli- there's a cliche, cliches are there for a reason. Mm-hmm. It does feel like that. And so I've had to both try and understand the impact of that on the Australian community and how that's layered over with climate change, the bushfires, COVID, some of the, you know, long-standing challenges that we have in terms of things like trust in institutions, uh, trust in the political process, how people trust the media. So that and homeschooling three children <laughs> is really, I, I honestly, I sometimes feel like my brain is one of, you know, when you, when you blow up a helium balloon and, you know, it's just... You know, it's just about to burst. That's how I feel. It's like when people say it can't get any more complex, but it can. <laughs> oh, it can definitely, definitely. And from a researcher's side, this is like a fast. This is like a a smorgasbord for a researcher. That you kind of like if researchers are kind of looking, and I guess like for any researcher, really. But over the last decade or so, there were things to explore. But then suddenly, it's going explosion of just so many different angles to kind of keep yeah. get heads around, and and it, yeah. it whether it's or well, it is unprecedented, but it's historic and it's a time and it will pass, but it's trying to make sense of it as we're going through. So it's, yeah. there we go. And, and managing kids at home, our, our youngest went back to school today, but she had an option of staying at home or not. And we, she went to, she went to school today and she was really excited, missing her friends, but we were a little bit sad almost going, oh, oh how <laughs> so old not, is she? Oh, she's, she's 10. So she's, oh. she's kind of that. So she's not really little, but it's just, yeah. and our oldest is still at home and she says she's liking it. It's working well, yeah. but yeah. different times. Very now, different. I'll come back to all the crazy in a moment, but I'm trying to keep some consistency with all the, the earlier questions, the pre-COVID uh, interviews we've we've had. Um, what were you like as a young girl? We'll kind of just have a really touch on that as a as a as a kid, and then we'll kind of we'll come back uh, to COVID. Well. It's very interesting, you know. Before I went to school, my mum said I was an extraordinarily um, determined child, um, but because my father's an international lawyer and my mother's a kind of obsessive traveller, um, I moved a lot as a kid. So we moved every year to 18 months and bounced around from Adelaide to Sydney to Oxford and Cambridge. My father's an intellectual and academic. Mm. And I was extraordinarily nerdy and shy and kind of socially awkward as a result of that. Um but I loved reading and I, um, you know, was like all nerds. And then really when we finally settled in Sydney and I had some kind of consistency of education, I kind of came out of my shell a bit, bit then. But as a child you would have seen me as a kind of basically a wallflower in many ways. But when I think about the work that I do now, and I've reflected on this in some of my writing, what I, I came from 
my parents were very different. My mother was the only child of Italian migrants from northern Queensland, um, not dirt poor but pretty poor, and growing up Italian in Adelaide in the 50s and 60s was not a fun time, um, so lots of racism. My father came from a very, very well-to-do Anglo family, very wealthy South Australian family, lots of, you know, captains of industry yeah. and churchmen in his family, the eldest of seven. So you couldn't get two different kinds of characters. And because we moved around a lot and I moved from, you know, the, it's this Italian migrant context to my father's kind of, um, you know, well-to-do upper-class Anglican context, I think what it gave me was the ability to, to read different yeah. situations and get a read on when you're always the new girl, when you go to a new school all the time and new people, you, you're able to kind of pick up things. Part of that self-protection, but part of it is just kind of like how do I have to work out the world I do and you constantly challenge. And because when we were kids we did a lot of travelling overseas and, I'm, you know, I'm 47 and, and kids didn't go to Europe every year when, it, when I was growing up. It's kind of de rigueur now. So I... I you know, I lived in Italy for short periods of time and travelled around the world. So it, it gave me what all great, I think, qualitative researchers have, which is just this kind of instinct, this kind of nose for people, dynamics, what's being said, what's not being said. And, um, you know, I think that I found a job that has honed that, talent that I had to build as a, as a young, socially awkward child thrown into all kinds of contexts, yeah. social contexts all makes um, sense. from a very young age. It, it all makes sense. So it, um, certainly as you were describing yourself as a child, that in my mind kind of it was quite clear in my mind that that informed your adult, your, like your, your child in the, the reading, curiosity, kind of different yeah. cultures. So yeah. even back then did you see that people were different in different places? I did, and I also saw that I was different in different places, yeah. that I had to be different in order to make people So contextual, so depending on where yeah. you are and who you were with. Yeah. Absolutely. And and even, you know, big cultural differences, you know. I mean, I, I remember really, really vividly walking into my grandparents' kitchen, my Italian grandparents' kitchen, and they were having this, my mother and my grandparents were having this kind of animated conversation, you know, in Italian. And had that animated conversation be ha been had with my father and his grandparents, his parents, which never would have happened. It would have been a fight. But with my grandparents and my mother, it was a discussion about lunch. Would we have <laughs> pasta? Would we have, like, and they were just, like, growing out, you know, wog arms everywhere. And you're like, oh, okay, it's not a fight. It's just that these people have really strong opinions about food. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I think that's absolutely right. And then, and look, the, one of the one of the difficulties, and actually, very, very, very early on in my career, Hugh McKay shared this insight with me. He said, over time, because you're having to do all these groups, meet all these people, they'll talk about some intimate stuff with you. You you remain really open, but that often means that that you take that stuff on, that energy on, those those good and bad things, those stories, and he said, and you've got to find a counterpoint to it. So, um, you know, one of the things that kind of is a counterpoint for me in many ways is some kind of level of introvert, you know, you know kind of time as introvert. Um, so cooking, walking, being on your own, 
reading as a way to kind of balance out the fact that um, personally and professionally you're so open to what people are saying, to the energy they bring out, to the stories that they have, and your mind is working through them all the time. There's a combination of analysis and empathy that you have to do to be a good qualitative researcher and it, it can it can take its toll certainly over time um listening to yeah. all of those stories so yeah i mean uh, you 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 just keep you just kind of your radar is so incredibly finely tuned okay. there's great things about it but it also it is also something that you have to manage personally okay what's the weirdest thing you've seen in let's say the last week I think you're sort of with all the, the, all the changes, the weirdest thing you've gone, wow, I never would have thought that would have happened. The weirdest thing, the weirdest thing that I've seen in the last week. Um, wow. Um, I think one of the things, okay, let me just think, let me think about that. Interesting. So it's going to take me a little while to think about it's that. Right. Um, I mean, anything, all you need to do is watch a press conference with Donald Trump for about five minutes and you basically, that ticks the weirdest thing. <laughs> the weirdest thing box pretty easily. But that's such like that shooting fish in a barrel, right? Yeah. Um, look, one of the things that has been really interesting, going back to COVID because it's all I can think about, is um, it's not so much weird, I mean, we would describe it as weird, is this the extent in America into which a certain percentage of the population are so paranoid about government control um, that they're prepared to protest about law, the very laws that will protect them. You know, they kind of think that anything to do with restriction of movement or any of those other kinds of things, even though it's there to protect mm -hmm. everybody and to make sure that tens of thousands of people don't die and the American economy doesn't continue to flounder, you know, so, so seeing those protests, particularly the last couple of days, people storming the, um, the State House in Michigan with guns saying, we, you know, lockdown is some kind of infringement of our rights. That to me is weird. But because I'm an Australian, because in many ways Australians aren't that sensitive about those kinds of things. If, no. they, if they think that the kinds of laws that governments are making are legitimate and there for public protection and not necessarily there forever but there for a purpose for a short period of time, whether that be water restrictions or whether that yeah. be, you know, any of those are the kinds of things that we have to do now, they kind of largely accept them, you yeah. know, because they want, they want society to do well and they're not, you know, they're not too hung up about, you're telling me I can't do this thing. So, yeah, so that was the weirdest thing. I was watching all of these people, some of them with guns, storming that Michigan State House with these kind of extreme placards saying, you know, about the lockdown being, being you know, un-American. their civil liberties and, yeah. yeah. Is that right? <laughs> that's right. And, you know, give me liberty or give me death. Well, you'll get both. You'll get liberty and you'll get death. Yeah, and Trump's <laughs> not helping, is he? <laughs> no, no, he really isn't. He's making it, making it far worse. That's right. So well, on that, where, how do you see Australians as different to people from the US? 
So wait, oh, I, this, I know it's a very big generalization, yeah. but generalizations are generally have tr- some truth in them. How are we different? Yeah, I think one of the things, and and I quite like this, is that, and it goes to my point before, is that Australians are, are more pragmatic than principled, right? So they're kind of, and and that makes them adaptable, right? We are we are pretty adaptable in yeah. some ways, and I think. I mean, I wrote in my quarterly essay and to some extent in the book that I wrote, Still Lucky, is that Australians, um, you know, for them, fairness matters more than freedom. Like what's going to get us there rather than what is the principle? And, and look, there's probably lots in our political culture, our social culture that makes that possible. You could even look at the really stark differences between our constitutions. Like our constitution is a is a... I mean, there's lots of critiques about it being a racist document because it doesn't acknowledge, you know, First Nations people. But more broadly, it's a very pragmatic document. You know, it's not an idea. It's not a highly ideological document. It's not full of a whole lot of statements about rights and principles. It's really about how government works and how states might work together. So it's it's boring and pragmatic, um, but it gets us there, right? It gets us there. And um, in the American Constitution is an extraordinary document. It's inspiring. Um, it's it's aspirational. And it's also can potentially be a problem. And so you start to look at things like um, how Americans have framed issues around things like gun ownership, reproductive rights, and now all these kinds of things in terms of what governments can and can't do to protect its citizens. And those discussions are so much more vexed in, in America. And often, you know, they have, um, they have a kind of a body count, right, those kinds of, that kind of culture, you know, whether it be, um, whether it be shootings in schools or any of those other kinds of things. So while, while a lot of people get frustrated at the kind of, what they would think is the pedestrian and pragmatic nature of Australian politics and Australian political life, I see benefits as well. And and um, and and I also and I and I, I would like to be able to match this kind of pragmatic pro- approach to politics with greater engagement. Right? Certainly, if you're engaged in politics in America, you're really really engaged. I mean, lots of people don't vote. In Australia, everybody votes pretty much, um, regardless of the fine. But we're just not quite as passionate. So, so maybe we, the two go together. So, so we all vote, but we're relatively apathetic about it. Yeah, yeah we yeah. kind of just we turn up, we do it. It's yeah. kind of one of those things we do. You yeah. know, like we put our seatbelt on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we, we've got to do. You know, we download an app. The government tells us we have to download, although not all of us do that. Um, so yeah, so I'm always fascinated. I would much, much, much rather raise children in a, in a, in a political culture yeah. like Australia. And, and, and Australia, I'd love them to experience what a, a America and what it's like to be there because, obviously, it's an extraordinary place, very, very interesting, very diverse. And it's, we think and we're diverse. We're actually thing. not anywhere near as diverse as America yeah. is. But in the US, is that is that just that's just their culture of where they've come from? You sort of said it's their, their constitution. Is it? it it's everything, it, really. It's a pain point, I guess, embedded. That, and, and I think it's got to do with the fact that they've fought wars to protect this and we've never, on, on their own soil, um, against their own citizens and we've never, ever really had to do that. Um, so they're very, very different. And, and, and also I think that while people like to make big 
people like to make big claims that Queenslanders are different from people from WA and Tasmania. And obviously, there's some differences having done groups. The differences are mild compared to the to the you know extreme differences in America um, in terms of a whole range of kinds of things, culture, approach, the South, the North. You know, so yeah, and okay. and their population is larger. So it's a very easy comparison to make. Um, I um, but I think I think what happens is that often, you know, the culture of another country, particularly when we've had such a long relationship, just just kind of highlights the strengths and weaknesses of our culture. So I'm always kind of interested in comparing the two. Yeah. And Australians tend to have a view of she'll be right, and we tend to not always want to listen to our leaders but then at the moment where we seem to be listening by and large is that yeah it's true i don't think we particularly we don't have a lot of respect for our leaders but we have respect for the rule of law okay and we have respect for for institutions you know that we that have stood the test of time um so it's i mean it's easy to be cynical about politics it's almost de rigueur to be cynical about politics if you said i i want to believe what politicians say to me and i admire politicians people think you're a bit of an idiot it's like saying i admire car salesmen or (laughs) (laughs) i believe everything you know i believe everything that you know um you see an advertising uh, telemarketers tell me when they ring me up or you know all the rest of it So, so you have to say that but when you actually you actually see what australians do you know, so if you say to them, where do you go to get trusted information about blah? Oh, I go to a government website or, you know, um, or I'll go to the ABC, right? So so I think that we do, even though we say we're cynical about politics, we actually are quite, we turn to government all the time. We turn, mm. to, we turn when there's a problem, we always think the government should be doing something about it. We never say, oh, we should do something about it or solution is to come to the from the community i mean that happens certainly in indigenous communities they're much more likely to say that but you know coming up on 20 years of research i can't think of a time when a group hasn't identified a problem in society and not said the government should do something about this the yeah. government should do more. and i think there's a general trust that the people in government even if it's not in your on your side of politics yeah. the people in government are smart capable people Yes, yeah, and I certainly think in the bureaucracy, and so if you look at, you know, any of the trust indicators, the kinds of institutions that people kind of rate as, as, you know, so they will rate the ABC and SBS far above commercial, um, you you know, commercial stations in terms of trustworthiness. They'll, um, in terms of institutions that they trust, they trust the High Court, they trust the Federal Mm -hmm. Police, they trust the CSIRO, um, you know, they probably trust the tax agent you know, the ATO is a bit lower, but, um, you know, the and, and, and the institutions of government and, and bureaucrats, I might grumble about them, but we still think that we still have an expectation not of corruption, of efficiency, of things, of, of things having to work and do well and, and to, to go well. And, and we, um, we still feel that, you know, even though we constantly complain about elections, we still vote and there is still an enormous amount of support, very, very small, like literally single-digit support for the idea of getting rid of compulsory voting. Yeah, okay. So if we didn't, you know, in every survey that I've ever conducted or seen, so if we really, really hated government and politics, you would imagine that there would be much, much higher, 
You would also imagine that the the rate of informal voting, which is people accidentally or deliberately not voting correctly in elections, would skyrocket and it hasn't actually, it's flatlined. So, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that we might grumble about politics and politicians and government, but we still listen, we still have an expectation of trust and efficiency and we still turn to them when we want problems solved. And at the moment it feels like government is bipartisan. They're not, they're not fighting, which is yeah. the usual way. That's the frustration that we see, that people, it's yeah. always fighting, it's always about one-upmanship. But at the yeah. moment, is that what you're seeing in your work? Yeah, I think we are. I think that as the, as what, so what will happen is as the epidemiology is the trajectory of, of deaths and active cases declines and the active question about the role of government in the economic um, recovery you'll start to see that bipartisan support, that consensus start to break down. And necessarily, of course, because what you've got now is just an unprecedented, I mean, it makes the, the, the spending on the GFC look very, very small. We've got an unprecedented amount of federal government spending, state government spending, and we've got, we've had no parliament standing, right? And we've had a media, um, really, really focused on the health crisis rather than the political theatre or not political contest about how how the post-COVID period is going to be managed. And so I think we are going to get um, a more um, critical, combative political environment about the recovery, and that's quite necessary. And I suppose it's quite particularly in Australia because if we manage to do what we kind of, if we manage to replicate what we did with the GFC, which is that it affected us but not as badly as the rest of the world, um, we do need to make sure that that the nature of the, the spending for the economic recovery is commensurate with the damage that's been done, that people don't get left behind, that we don't just get to see really kind of convenient corporate bailouts but other parts of the economy left to languish. And also more importantly that we make sure that this recovery addresses some of the much, much longer-term issues that exist in the the economy and in our society that, that can be addressed in that recovery. That might be climate change, that might be making sure that those areas that were already affected by the fires and are going to also be affected by COVID are particularly supported, that we make sure that the most vulnerable workers in our economy aren't penalised, right? We make sure that a whole all of those kinds of things are happening. We make sure, I mean, we, we're in a position now where we've been um, doing a lot of scrutiny of the aged care sector. Now, there's obviously a lot of protection around the aged care sector as well. So we want to make sure that all of those things We've got to make sure that the recovery multitasks yeah. as much as it possibly can. Right. You know, obviously we've had some initial stimulus spending, which um, all reports show has actually done what it's supposed to do. Now that's kind of pretty much worked its way through the economy. The people that got the checks kind of spent it where they were supposed to. And now there's that harder, longer-term economic recovery, the role of government, the role of civil society, the role of corporations, Um there'll be a lot more scrutiny, necessary scrutiny, and probably a bit more, um, you know, probably a bit less bipartisan and a little bit more yeah. um, contest around that, That's which right. I think is but necessary. A, but a pandemic's not a time for politics. No, 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 a pandemic isn't a time for politics. And one of the reasons why it's not a time for politics is that, as you would know, is that 
in order to get it under control, you want the messaging to be very, very simple. Mm. And in fact, even though we've managed it very well, if I look back at it, I think the biggest mistake they made was as soon as it was clear that the pandemic was going to stretch beyond China, a, a blanket public health campaign around hand washing, um, staying at home if you're sick, all that kind of stuff. We were probably about four or five weeks late on that. Um, mm. But you know, you don't have, you don't, you don't want to play politics at a time where very, very simple, consistent messaging particularly to communities that, particularly communities where English isn't their first language or they're not necessarily, you know, they're perhaps a bit alienated, you know, people socially isolated already, people who um, perhaps, you know, don't get a lot of information, clear information, easily confused, whether that be about language or something else. So you're absolutely right. But now I think, you know, it'd be pretty hard. Well, the ABC research that that I've done shows that, you know, big majorities are recognising the behaviour that they need to do and are mostly doing it so that it has kind of permeated, um, not just through the information but social cues as well. Like, this, I mean, I don't know how many, I've probably used hand sanitizer 5,000 times because there's hand sanitizer in every shop I go into mm. to get food. So, yeah, so I think that's right. But I think that, you know, now as we're starting slowly to creep out and emerge, I think, and and people have a bit more appetite for okay. Well, what's next? You'll start to see that that um, that kind of politicians playing nice, yeah. <laughs> nice with each other, fall away a bit more. So, do you? Uh, ha- I'm getting the sense that you feel strongly that will be different in some ways post COVID than pre COVID. I how think COVID changes. So I think it's really interesting, and I was I was con- contemplating this in the context of the fires as well. I think that there will be um, potentially both positive and negative consequences from it. So today, for example, or yesterday, we saw a big debate kind of blow up in the media about immigration, about whether we should be, you know, we've kind of sealed the borders. A lot of people have left. You know, immigration is kind of perennially controversial conversation in Australian politics and society about whether, you know, we have to kind of put Aussies first in terms of jobs. And, of course, there's always been um, in anti-immigration rhetoric this anxiety around disease anyway. Like there's always been this idea that migrants bring disease. You know, at different times it was migrants, you know, from Africa bring AIDS or, you know, different people... Um, you know, bringing things in. So there's there's those kinds of things that happen where these kinds of already quite um, potentially dark negative anxieties or anxieties in society are, are elevated, are kind of amplified, not just during the pandemic but in its wake, mm-hmm. right? Um, so where you might get a situation where Australians say, oh, we want to go to Bali but we don't want Chinese migrants coming in. Yeah. <laughs> like we want it, we want our cake and eat it too in terms of... So it's almost giving permission. We're, we're moving from being globally focused to locally focused, which almost makes it okay to say we want to protect our local... Exactly. Doesn't it? Wow, okay. But, but again, you know, one of the things that... And these aren't mutually exclusive. There isn't... There is value in thinking, okay... In the future as crises, whether that be around climate change or economic crises or health crises, 
mean that there are periods where we ne- where supply chains will be disrupted, where flow immigrate you know people coming in and out of the country is going to be harder. How is it that we can be self sufficient? So, what industries do we need to make sure that we support? Um, can we supply all our energy needs? Can we supply our resources? How self-sufficient, how independent are we? And you can also think too about, and the tertiary sector is a perfect example here, the tertiary sector has, has basically, the lifeblood of the tertiary sector is overseas students. And that has meant that governments of all stripes have, have basically felt like they haven't needed to fund the tertiary sector you know, as with a lot of public money, cut that public money because of international students. But then suddenly international students can't come and a massive industry, right, as an employer, as a deliverer of services, including healthcare professionals needed to deal with the pandemic, suddenly it's in crisis, right? So it does really, a pandemic is one of those kinds of things that that is going to, elevate and show all the strengths and weaknesses in a society and economy and then how once the pandemic goes away how political leaders pick and choose what they do about that and is is a really a test both of character and Mm. ideology and so i think that's what we'll see we'll see in the next couple of months those kinds of already existing tensions in australian politics and society kind of re-emerge um, tainted or kind of, you know, painted over with the COVID, you know, painted in a COVID wrapping, making people think, okay, well, what's the way forward? Yeah. And, and with the bushfire, like, so the bushfires was almost like a literal burning deck. It was like, a lot yeah. more talk last year around, um, yeah. around climate change and the importance of climate change. Uh, and, and Greta got some really good conversation going there with different mm. audience, different perspective, yeah. almost like without couldn't have been done by design then the bushfires occur and people are thinking well this is an example of of climate change but also i can't go for my my normal summer holiday and that's 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 not great so we've got to do something about this and then then uh, covid occurs so it's really almost bringing it back to that and then some of our research people were looking about what are the what's the silver lining in on covid and they're saying well we can see that pollution's less we can see in other parts of the world the animals are now Swimming across rivers that were polluted for a long time. Do you, do you, has this, will COVID kind of dramatically change those, those sort of what, what we're doing? I guess at an individual level, but I guess at a political level. What, what do you think, I think the push is? I hope that what COVID will make people realize at a personal community level is, is what needs to be in place and what needs to be strengthened when a crisis happens. Mm. So I think about it in terms of, I love to think about it in terms of my actually own street and neighbourhood, which is a lovely area and, you know, I, we, some people we know by name but most people we don't, has a Facebook page, right, which is a very simple, you know, sometimes That's people will idea, say, yeah. Yeah. I found you know, somebody's dogs running around or whatever. And then during COVID it's kind of come alive with people saying such and such, you know, does anybody need any toilet paper? I've got this. And I can see that the street has become really alive and, and sensitive to the fact that there are some older people living in the street who 
may be scared or worried about going shopping and so we've looked after them there's a lot more smiles there's because we have to kind of walk around each other a lot more kind of engagement and it's made me realize actually i'm in a place where um the social capital and the social connections and links and the goodwill is actually quite strong it's the kind of place i want to raise my kids but for other people they might actually realize no we're not in a place in a we're in a crisis situation actually there are some real um, things that need to be built up here and some connections and some support, community support. So I think that what COVID makes us realise is not just about the kind of healthcare system we need, the kind of technological solutions we need, the kind of trust in government that we need. It also shows how we need as a society to strengthen the, the connections and links to make sure that we actually are, uh, Got come through a crisis in a way where there isn't widespread social dis, um, disruption or real damage done, right? And so that there isn't widespread looting. There was a bit of, there was certainly some, you know, yeah. lots of examples of people hoarding stuff, but that wasn't, you know, that was the exception rather than the rule. Um, in many cases, and it was mainly about supply chain stuff. You know, it'd be interesting if this ever happens again, whether that does happen again or not. So I think that's what it does. It makes people kind of reflect on what is it that worked well and what is it that needs to be built up, not just for crises, but just for day-to-day living. So do you, you know? sense that people will put more pressures, I'm sorry, more pressure on their politicians to make change? Look, I think if, um, I think had the healthcare system been overwhelmed in a way which was really, and we'd had lots of, for example, healthcare professional di- professionals die, like frontline healthcare troops, um, which has happened in other countries, like in, it's, it's, you know, in places like Italy and Spain, it's been shocking. Then I think you would see a lot more public pressure on, you know, how good is our healthcare system? How how crisis ready is it? Mm. And, you know, there would be that. No, I don't think that's going to happen because, you know, we don't have this over, you know, we don't have our hospitals overwhelmed at this stage mm-hmm. and luckily that we don't. I think the larger question is really going to be around the geopolitics, the relationship with China how open and closed we are, because that's such, a, it's always been such a vexed issue for the Australian community. And it, this is, that's that, and we already see that happening. People talking about our relationship with China, about finger pointing and, mm. and, and, and know, growing racism, it seems to be. Though. Absolutely. And some racist attacks as well. So I think it's really going to focus in on that. And I'm, I have my doubts about whether that's going to be a constructive conversation given the nature of political leadership across the country or some elements of political leadership. So that I worry about that. That's yeah. what I worry about. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, is Australia still lucky? Look, yes, I think so. And I think that if we get through this and we manage to kind of get back to some business as usual within a couple of months, it'll keep making people, keep, keep, keep building that story that Australians like to tell themselves, which is that, you know, this is the best place in the world to live and, you know, bad things happen globally and, yeah, they happen here but not not anywhere near as badly. Um, you know, even small things, like even though it's it's winter, um, 
we've got, you know, we've been able to go out and walk and green spaces and, you know, I mean, all those kinds of things that have made, even though lockdown's been difficult, nowhere near as difficult as in other kinds of parts of the world. So I think, I mean, I think that the perception is that basically we're still lucky and the reality is is that we're still lucky. The question is how good are we at maximising our luck? One day our luck will run out um, and probably climate change will be the thing that makes it run out first. And, and, and to that extent, to the issue about whether Australia can remain lucky given the nature of climate change, Australia is unique globally in terms of climate change. It is the most affluent country that will be most affected by climate change. Most countries being affected directly by climate change, either through rising, either through significant water shortages or extreme weather or rising tides, tend to be poor countries, except for Australia. So we are kind of, that's why there's so much global interest in how we respond. So I think climate change will be the thing that tests the concept of Australia as a lucky country because we have the most to lose, but ironically, we have the most to gain from acting on climate change. So the other thing, the reason why Australia is so unique is no other country is as well positioned in terms of geography and capacity to be a renewable energy superpower. And that's not an exaggeration. So climate change will test the limits of Australia as a lucky country. And we are very reliant on mining and that's a lot of that's yep. changing okay. and changing different yep. fuels. And, and is that where you're coming from? So I guess that we, we are a, we're a, a net exporter, but only, mm. only just if you take mining out, then we've, yep. we've likely got some economic problems. And I guess in some yeah. ways that this COVID kind of highlights, I guess, our vulnerabilities to a certain extent. Only it does, it does. Isolated. Now, people, people forget that, yes, Australia is a, a, you know, has relied a lot on mining, but not all, but, but renewable energy provides an opportunity for the mining sector, not the fossil fuel sector, of course, yeah. but the mining sector in Australia. In fact, you know, there's, there's all these kinds of things that we can export that will, um, turbocharge the renewable energy um, sector around the world that we also need here for batteries and battery storage mm-hmm. and all kinds of things. So it, it, to, to kind of position action on climate change as a problem for the mining industry across the board, that's not the case. There's actually extraordinary opportunities for some parts of mining. Um, so, yeah, so this is it. It's a kind of like to what extent are we are we prepared to maximize you know we have been lucky in that we are a country that has already had all these resources close to india and china and so geographically close and gift and you know kind of endowed with all these wonderful natural resources so that's been helpful to what extent are we prepared to make the transition where that is still the case india and china all of those asian um asian countries that need and are going in the renewable energy sector, we can still provide opportunities for them, including through things like hydrogen. Um, so to what extent are we prepared to, to, to continue to be the lucky country, but not on the same terms as we have been in the past, but on new terms in a way that gives us some fighting chance to continue to be a habitable yeah continent and, and in that, a habitable country does that require us to think to change our thinking like that 
um, Australians see ourselves as pioneering, and yeah. but then we're then we're probably we're, I think the second biggest gamblers in the world after yeah. Singapore and <laughs> some huge scary amount and. Maybe the argument is that we're not always that innovative because it's an easy lifestyle and we don't. There's no real. Yeah, it is interesting that we don't strive because we've had it so easy. No, the biggest the biggest challenge is the political challenge. Is the is the is the the significant political the significant impediments to climate action through a transition to renewables that exist in many of the political parties. and, of course, supported by donations from the fossil fuel industries. Like okay. if you dealt with that and if you if you dealt with that, then you would be dealing with a lot. You'd be dealing with a lot. You'd be able to, you'd be able to make, you'd be able to translate the general concern that people have into climate change much easier into action if you dealt with some of those political blockages and some of those issues around donations. Yeah. That would certainly be the first. And I guess there's action. been a lot of conversation around COVID's, illustrated how quickly governments can shift when they really want to. So I guess that's absolutely on the basis of well this is what the science tells us, this is what the eggheads tell us and we're gonna and and um and they've got lots of projections about where it's gonna go, but we're gonna assume a worst case scenario and act now just so we're not overwhelmed later on. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what they've done. Right, yeah. very early on talked side, about yeah, yeah. we might have to shut the economy down for six to twelve months. We might, you know, this is going to change the way we do everything. We're going to have to accept a significant economic hit, a significant unemployment, drop in in growth, right? Drop in superannuation funds, right? And we're going to say to you, we're actually talking about tens of thousands of people potentially dying, right? None of that happened. I mean, it's, we're still waiting. I mean, we're still you don't want to count your chickens before they hatch, but all on the basis of what a whole lot of, you know, people with PhDs <laughs> <laughs> who are, you know, experts in pandemics and, you know, community transition and epidemiology told them so we can do it for climate change. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the parallel, I mean, the, the parallels between the two are, are very tempting and there's a lot of exceptions. You know, you don't want to be too neat in drawing the two together, but there are some really critical lessons. Yeah. And but, critical but that's lessons an interesting one. The it, ability it, of people to work together to sacrifice to protect people they know and don't know mm. and society at large. Yeah. But there's been a lot of discussion over recent years around is the climate change discussion is it yeah, is, is what's the message? What's the communication that needs to be required to actually shift people is it just pol- is it just politics or is it, 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 where the pandemic obviously we're talking about death we're talking about a, a lot of big issues so people will, will shift quite yeah. easily but when we get to climate change it just seems to be one that gee the past decade a lot of discussion in particular but a lot of discussion around how do we do it we're being sensitive we can't yeah. get economy and then we yeah well this is what my new book is about it comes yeah. out in the middle of the year <laughs> i mean the, the the thing is is that climate there's many many challenges about the climate change that the message and messages to different groups of people the primary problem is that climate change has become not about the science or the action but about political and cultural social identity right so 
you know, once upon a time you could be a Republican or a Democrat or a Liberal or a Labor person and have a position on climate change that was like your position on vaccinations or anything else, right? But the, the it's a, as an issue it's become politicised, right? So people imagine it through a political lens first rather than anything else. And so that has allowed, been allowed to build up in countries like Australia and America, Canada, to some extent in the, U, in the UK, but not as much, not as much as here. And it's something that in order to really, you have to break that down, right? So to say that you're somebody who votes for the National Party and is, you know, you're in country Victoria, surrounded by National Party voters and say you believe in climate change is a really difficult thing to do because you're surrounded by people who think that, that, you know, it's about a political identity more than it's about anything else. So that's a big, big challenge um, to be able to do that and a really key and important role in breaking down partisanism around climate change is making sure that we hear about climate change from different kinds of people, people who are conservative, religious leaders and, you know, farmers and people who never would never vote for the Greens or would never join a trade union and all those kinds of things. So that's a pretty important thing. And the thing about COVID is because it just because it kind of arrived quickly, it, mm. it wasn't able to be politicised. That being said, in America, the kinds of people, <laughs> it, 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 there's a bit of politicisation around COVID and there's a, been a little bit here, although it hasn't been quite as successful. You've got lots and lots of, you know, extreme right-wing commentators who are also climate deniers saying, oh, this is an over-exaggeration and, we shouldn't be doing this and this is an overreaction. Mm. So you get a little that bit. That happened a bit early on, didn't it, Rebecca? It did, it did, but it didn't get a lot of traction, yeah. right, in Australia because we just don't have that kind of same narrative around it. But if an issue's been around long enough and if the threat is remote, by remote I mean not right now, not people dying right now, but potentially people, you know, dying in the future, then you know, politicisation and that polarisation is allowed to happen and sets in and is very hard to strip away, whereas COVID, it just happened and our reaction has been very, very much in line with, you know, the Australian character and how we see, you know, how we how we respond to, to government, to authority, yeah. to working together to deal with a community issue in a way that is basically pretty peaceful and pretty, um, you know, pretty orderly. Yeah. And I think we're proud of ourselves. You look at um, Absolutely. Australia, pretty plow- proud that we've flattened the curve and it was very yeah. scary for a while there and we were really sort of um, quite critical of how well as a community we were responding and now it's yeah. places talking about, zero new cases, absolutely, a sense of pride yeah. and sharing nice yeah. graphics and, and the like. So absolutely. do you think that that will come back to if we can control this and show that our geographic isolation is actually a benefit, maybe we can help climate change? Is that a far reach? Well, I think, uh, I think that the main, and, you know, this I'm still thinking through because I don't want to make too many simple or easy connections mm-hmm. and I also need to wait to see whether in you know climate change is something that will start pan out for a long period of time and you know while we remember COVID it may not be we may not have another pandemic for another five or ten years or ever again so 
um, well, not ever again, but in, in the in living memory. But we are doubt. There's no doubt that in the next summer season we might be more prepared, but we're still going to have the same kinds of conditions that we had in the last summer. Um, what I think, um, what I think, if I if was if I was to speculate at this stage, the greatest lesson from COVID it, for climate change is the confidence it gives people that that we can work together in a way where, which involves sacrifice to deal with something that seems absolutely overwhelming and bigger and, and spreads over our national borders. So being able to have in living memory an example of that is really important because most of the time prior to COVID, the only two real examples that that people interested in action on climate change used as an example, um, historical example of where we've come together as a society to deal with a problem has been world wars, mm. right? And one of the problems is, is that for most, Austra most Australians don't remember ever being in a world war, right? And so that, that feels like history. It feels like so remote. And the other problem, of course, with the war metaphor is that, is that while is while it was about collective mobilisation around an enemy, there is no real enemy in climate change. I mean, there's, you know, the fossil fuel companies, but they're not, it's not the same. The fossil fuel companies aren't the Nazis, right? <laughs> the enemy is, is, a, is an invisible, a build-up of, of an invisible gas, and most people see the war metaphor as really around conflict. So what you, so, so one of the difficulties, what it gives us is a recent example that would hopefully make people feel confident that we have the capacity as a society to act quickly to deal with something that threatens the community. And by acting quickly also meaning significant behaviour change mm. to be able to address that. So that's probably the, I want us to be able to draw on uh, pride and uh, memory in that in the work in the work that we'll have to do on climate change, and it doesn't always need to be totally focused in on the economy and jobs. Exactly, like some exactly. of the re references have been about this pandemic, similar to the GFC. Well, it's very different, and most many people, unless you lost your job, the GFC means very little. I would have thought, and Absolutely. even what are sort of the um, different different recessions we've had. Um, I don't think people see that as being the same. And then um, no. it, it is hard. I think I think that's a lot. I, I want, do, do you feel like within Australia and, and in other places there was a level of complacency that crept through? Do you feel like we maybe did get a little bit? Yes, we, we do. We've got a bit smug. <laughs> a little bit smug, yeah. And there are many people who said, look, you know, when when a crisis is an opportunity to change, right? An opportunity mm. to do things, and you won't change without it. So you won't. Yeah. You know. I remember once, really, really early in my social research, I was in Brisbane, and, and this group of older men were talking about climate change, and he said, "You said no one. You said you, you only stop eating red meat after the heart attack." <laughs> he like said something about most, for most people in human nature, something really like has to get mm -hmm. real before you face it. And even for some people that won't ever come, like something real can happen and you can still be in denial. So, mm -hmm. so there's a recognition that we need a, a shock to change. And because Australia has always been slightly buffered from these shocks, 
that there's this view that then the push for reform or the push to do things differently or the, or the opportunity for different kinds of leaders who are prepared to be more um, adventurous and brave step forward, then we've never had we'd ever be able to have that. Um, mm. We've never been able to, to, but you to need develop the that because we've been so protected. Yeah, but you need the leaders to drive it. You, you need the leaders yeah. to come in saying... These are the regulations, this is the requirement, because yeah. that's what they're doing great at the moment. They're coming on the news and they're saying this is how we're going. It's almost like if you took take out COVID and made it climate change, it's a how are we progressing, this is what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Do this. And you can it's, it's, see, you can see the, the ones that are doing it consistently, they, they did it well through the fires, a lot of the state premiers in particular, and now they're doing the same with COVID. Mm, yeah. It's fascinating, yeah. Do you have any sense of anything else that will will change as people? Do you think do you, do you feel like we'll Australia will become stronger as a result of this because we've been able to show that we can we can respond and flatten the curve quite quickly? Do you feel like we're Yes, I think so. I hope that people will I mean there's a couple of pet things that I hope people will feel. I hope people will realise that have a renewed respect for face-to-face communication. <laughs> you know, and um, look, I mean, there's both way, there's, there's both things have happened. A lot of businesses, schools and all the rest of it have, to, have had to think about, okay, how can we deliver everything online? So they've been forced to do some of that stuff and maybe that's generated new processes, developed new skills, brought about new products. So that's not a bad thing. And some of the things that, some of those things might last. But I think every nobody wants to do it, it. I will never do another Zoom meeting if I don't have to mm, <laughs> for some, or not never, but certainly for some time. I hope too because we're really going to be deprived as a society of anything close to culture, live culture, for some time. You know, there won't be much theatre for the rest of the year. There won't be concerts. There won't be festivals. And, and, you know, this is a part of Australian society which everybody loves but is, you know, chronically underfunded and underappreciated. And I really hope when it starts to come back that people really vote with their feet and go and see things and government realise that, you know, life is about bread and roses that we need, Mm -hmm. you know, we need people who make art and people who make, you know, face-to-face content and all the rest of it. The other thing I hope it makes communities realise is the absolute critical value of green of public space, of green spaces. And that's been one of the more common things that people have said to me, which is that how would we survive if we didn't couldn't walk our family to a local park and walk the dog to a local park? Because no one's going to gyms, no one's doing any of that stuff. And how important those outdoor spaces and resources, making sure that they are accessible, making sure that they're safe, mm-hmm. making sure that all different kinds of people can access them, right? And they don't. And so that is really critical. I think that hopefully there's a renewed yeah, understanding yeah. and appreciation. Almost highlighting what it means to be um, Australian, really. It's almost going what back is to in be many human. Ways, yeah, yeah, what it is to be human, which is not just about having, you know, a roof over your head and food. It's other things. It's social connection. So I hope that happens as well, if there's a recognition of that as well out of this. And, um, yeah, those are the things that I am I think we're all looking forward to. Are you involved in the arts? Are you, you involved in... Yeah, I am. I'm, so I'm on the board of the Bell Shakespeare Company yeah. and, um, you know, it's been a really, really difficult period of time and I've done lots of work in the past for the Australia Council and I... 
really passionate about the arts and I see it as chronically underfunded and by governments of all kinds is because they think, don't think it matters to people. Mm. Um, philanthropy and corporates have stepped in a bit, but it's not nowhere near enough. And, of course, we've got a whole sector of people who cannot work from, you know, while there's been some, they've done some interesting and innovative things online, you know, if you're an actor, you're just going to be out of work for the rest of the year and mm, it's going to be really scary, challenging, hugely challenging. Yeah. So, you know, in, in, in addition to everything else that, you know, we've had to do, which is like in our industry, we've had to make sure that all of our qual goes online and all the rest of it and, you know, do people have, you know, any any attention span to think about anything else that we might need to look at and kind of how does COVID affect all of our research projects? On top of that, we the board is, and um, the leadership of Bell have had to, as well as everybody else in the arts community, has had to think about how do we keep going? Mm. You know, how do we keep um, not just the people that produce the art and perform it but all of the, the industry, all the other people, including the people that, you know, run the restaurant in the theatre and front of house and, you know, yeah. clean it and all those kinds of things. How do we how do we keep that industry yeah. going? Our, our business and myself are quite involved in, in the arts for the past decade or so. And oh. how, do you have a sense of how the arts could better present themselves moving forward? Like, uh, to me, sport seems to, it's obvious, sport's part of being Australian and it's sort of, it's the activity, but it's also the spectacle of, of yeah. sport. But then arts just seems to... And obviously it's supported, but sort of it certainly doesn't get the support. It seems to be getting dwindling support, dwindling sort of funding. It does. How, would, look, how think, should the arts communicate the, the valuable role they play in culture? You know, they try to all the time. You know, mm. I've been involved in the past in, in lots of reports and, and lots of which has tried to put a dollar value on the jobs, you know. So they actually just, just what is it that arts actually contribute to the economy? Mm. How is it that it plays a critical role in tourism, um, overseas tourism and interstate, interstate tourism? How is it that it supports, you know, the education of our kids? How is it that it um, um, supports goals of social cohesion mm. and national identity? And I'm involved at the moment in an evaluation of contemporary arts being delivered in aged care in dementia for mm. people with dementia and how extraordinary it is to see the impact of really innovative and um, contemporary art work in the, in the aged care setting to keep people engaged, to keep them, to give them some quality of life. So... You know, the arts industry are trying to constantly demonstrate the value, the economic, social, cultural, mm. um, health, you know, value of the arts. We just need politicians who actually get that, yeah, okay. who are actually, you know, I mean, if, if you're a politician and what is what do you think is more valuable, um, what do you think is going to give you um a better profile in the electorate, right. turning up to a footy game or going to the art gallery. Yeah, that's right. You probably but, do both. Mm. But you probably think that if you go to the footy game, you look like a you know decent average bloke, and everybody will think you're a good guy. 
a good girl if you go to the footy, you know, like footy, you know, like all different kinds of sport. But I also like it, yeah. It, it's so a little bit, it's a bit about, a, it's a cultural, it's social. Well, that's what I was going to, was going to get to. Is it, it's, it's almost like cringe because we do different projects where it's proving yeah. the economic impact of yeah. an event or a or a, an arts company or whatever it might yeah, be. But sometimes it's cultural. It's, it just, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah, measurable sure. on a cultural impact of, and it's that commitment over a long time. So absolutely. you hope that things like that actually kind of start to, it's, it's our creativity. Yeah. It's our, says so much yeah. about who we are. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We started off towards the start talking about you as a, a young uh, a young girl. Do you have sort of thoughts about young people moving forward, young at heart, young of age? Do you kind of have what, what you, how you try well, to inform your children? Well, I have one of them. I, mean, I have one, one, one in the house, so one that's 12 <laughs> going on. Um, I mean, my, I started my research career with a book on Generation Y, which was mm, I've got deliberately positive about young people and, you know, the world that they grew up in and, and tried not to do that normal thing, which is like, oh, the young nowadays with their intuition, their, you know, selfish and all the rest of it. I mean, I, I really think that, you know, one of the for for young people in Australia, even young people who come from families with jobs, you know what I mean. So people who are middle class, they're paying more for education than ever before, and they're getting less return for their education um, in the marketplace. Yeah. So, so they're getting them to do unpaid internships. They're often then, you know, they're not, even if they've done really well at uni, they may not necessarily be walking into secure jobs. They're facing issues around employment, um, sorry, issues around housing. So they're kind of economically not, you know what I mean, they're really, really economically not, even the really, even the ones that are relatively privileged in terms of access to education success, they're facing many, many more barriers than even my generation, but certainly my parents' generation. And they're still doing it. They're still, they're still, they're still trying incredibly hard. So I've got to say, I think there is, and you know, you, again, in the same way as you don't get, you don't get a lot of political capital from arguing about the benefit of the arts. You don't get a lot of political capital arguing that young Australians deserve a fair go and we need to address generational inequality. Why? Because politicians always have this theory that people with mortgages and kids, families, working families, ordinary battler families, that they're, there's their core constituency. And demographically, as we know, the majority of voters are over 50. Yes. <laughs> so you don't get a lot of political, you don't get a lot of political ticks talking about generational inequality but it is it is chronic and 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 i think that given all of that it's incredible that they still try hard and do well and vote and you know worry about climate change and do all those things i mean you know the most inspiring thing for me in the last two years has been the kids climate strike i think it's amazing yeah. you know um i think uh those kids are inspiring that inspired me. Yeah, keeping their confidence and not giving up hope. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Is there any? Thank you. What's the best way to find you? If people, you're on Twitter. Oh, or you can find me wherever. on Twitter. Yeah. You can find me on Instagram, 
Um, and I've got a, a, a like a professional page on Facebook. Google oh. Rebecca Huntley. All right, good on you. I'm the one with the he- big hair. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Stay safe and I will. You too. Healthy and happy. All right. All the best.